0: Hello, Choose Love audience. I'm so excited about today's podcast with Dr. Chris Cook. Dr. Chris Cook is actually on my board of directors and he is one of the few that has been with me since literally the beginning, actually before the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement was started. So Dr. Chris Cook is a professor of political science at Western Connecticut State University. He's the director of Western's Katharwi Honors Program. He's the founding director of the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation at Western Connecticut State University, which he got funding for from the Dalai Lama which is pretty cool. And he founded the debate team there. Chris has such an amazing background that I'm gonna let him talk to you about a little bit. And one thing that I didn't realize as I was going through your bio, that you're also a graduate of Boston University.
1: Yes, your alma mater.
0: Yes, or maybe I did realize that, and I'm like my mom, I just completely forget. But anyway, <laughs> I was so excited to see it's like Groundhog Day. Wow, that is so cool. <laughs> so, given your background actually, it's kind of counterintuitive with your counterintelligence background that you would have gotten into compassion. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I had the good fortune to sit down with Sir Richard Dearlove, and uh, Scarlett, you would know him through James Bond movies as M. We really called him C because he was the chief of MI6. And you know what I found out just anecdotally in my job, stationed mainly around the port of New Orleans and the southern part of the United States when I was fully active, was that the best agents were the most compassionate agents. But that's not what you see on TV or what you watch when you're watching James Bond movies, right? It's always the tough, the guys who are drinking and and doing a bunch of different things that you, you think, all right, tough guys do that but they actually make the worst agents by far for the fact that they don't listen to anyone. They don't try to understand a problem. And so I asked Sir Richard Dearlove, and he uh, said, sorry, son, the best agents are the most compassionate agents. And he said that because he goes, the agents that act as the toughest, that want to use what we call here in the United States enhanced interrogation techniques or torture, they get the information they want, not the information they need and passionate agents get the information they need. Why? Because they're the ones who actually build bridges and connect with the people that they're trying to get the information from, the truth from. And when you're trying to torture somebody, people will say anything to actually stop the torture. They'll say anything that you want Mm -hmm. them to say, not that you need them to say. And we saw that as British intelligence, they were against the IRA. We saw it firsthand, he said. And he goes, that's the way great counterintelligence agents operate. So I saw it early. And even though the training was different, it's counterintuitive unless you actually practice the counterintelligence techniques. If you're just a fan, or if you're just someone who reads novels, you have no clue how it actually works in the real world. I would argue Sir Richard Dearlove had every clue. He had the highest perch of intelligence and mine was just anecdotal. So to have him say what I found anecdotally It just proved to be the point. So no matter what you think, the hardest things in life, the softest elements of life can cut through them, just like water can cut through a rock. Compassion cuts through the truth. It gets to a complete understanding of any problem that's around you.
0: Wow, it seems like you would need some skills and tools to be able to do that, which is what we're gonna be talking about today and spoken as a graduate from the US Army Military Intelligence School's Counterintelligence Agent Program. So you were actually a counterintelligence agent in the Cold War.
1: Correct. Either to catch (laughs) Soviet spies or to give Soviet spies misinformation.
0: Wow. I don't know, for me, it's amazing because now you are the author of The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuel Success. And it's amazing how that journey brought you into compassion. And I think that one of the things that you researched and found out, which is so interesting, is this concept of survival of the kindest. Like, what the heck does that mean? We're used to saying survival of the fittest.
1: Well, we normally think there's this one person who actually said survival of the fittest and coined the term, right? We think it's this guy named Charles Darwin. Oh
0: yeah, I've heard (laughs) of him. And I've seen the little fish (laughs) on the back of cars with feet, that type of thing.
1: (laughs) Yes, and the funny part, right? He wrote On the Origin of the Species, and that's one of his famous books, and everyone thinks in that book, he actually used the phrase survival of the fittest, and that was his hypothesis.
0: And we teach that in schools, don't we?
1: They still do, and it's incorrect. Charles Darwin, i actually looking at the book right now, he never ever said that. He hypothesized something like it in that book, but he never coined the term survival of the fittest. It was a guy named Herbert Spencer who actually took Darwin's guess, basically hypothesis is an educated Mm -hmm. guess, took that guess and ran with it and incorporated it here into the United States. It's one of those guesses that Darwin was gonna research. Well, when he researched it, and he wrote about it in The Descent of Man of quite a few years after a lot of his research was over, he actually found that survival of fittest was not the case. In chapters two, four, and five of that book, he actually shows that the species that will move up the evolutionary ladder the most efficiently and effectively. And check this out. This is his words. is the species that will have the highest number of its members as sympathetic to each other. Not as coarse, not rude, not selfish, but as sympathetic to another member of its species. He says that those species that will have the highest number of its members as sympathetic to each other will efficiently and effectively move up the evolutionary ladder. So we have it backwards here in the United States. We even have Charles Darwin's interpretation wrong and backwards. So it was a guy named Herbert Spencer, not Darwin, who said survival of the fittest.
0: Isn't that interesting? because that's not exactly how we're taught in schools. I mean, specifically, we're taught the opposite. And then if you think about all the thoughts in my head, like what supports that is that we are born wired to connect with one another, with these mirror neurons in our brains, and we cannot survive alone. We need each other for our survival. I remember you were at this event too, there was a professor that asked how many people does it take to make a sweater? And I was like, okay, I'm really going to think about this. And I thought I was being pretty generous when I said 50, you know, cause you got the farmers and then you've got the truck drivers that bring the wool and you've got to clean it. You've got to knit it. You've got to have manufacturers. You've got to have distribution chains. You've got to have people that sell all these different things. And it was more like a million. And it blew my mind when you started talking about all the different people that we rely on every day. I mean, sometimes growing up, my mom and I would joke and we would call each other little red hens, like little children's book, Little Red Hen. She's calling out to all the members of the barnyard. Will you help me do this? Will you help me do this? And nobody wants to, but oh, when you bake that bread, everybody wants to have a piece of bread. And then the little red hen is like, well, nobody helped me do it. So I'm gonna do it alone. But in actuality, We're not alone. We rely on so many people. And that's exactly what I think Charles Darwin realized is that we need each other. And in order for you to be on my podcast, Chris, we have to have some kind of relationship. And I have to have been kind at some point and you kind to me (laughs) to have that relationship.
1: Yeah, and there's so many different studies and so many different fields and disciplines that actually go and show those interconnections, even astrobiology. Right, that we're all interconnected. And astrobiologists talk about how we're mostly made of stardust and stardust connects us with the universe. So we can get into that area. But what's really important, I think, for the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement is the fact that that connection also increases learning. So we have neuro-social psychologists like Matthew Lieberman who actually talk about and show through studies that when you have students of all different levels, teaching other students. So it's not the best students necessarily teaching everyone else. It's every student getting a chance to teach every other student. So they're connecting, they're answering questions. They're interacting with one another. Check this out, Lieberman and others have found this out. He compared classes where the students are teaching each other. So they're connecting with each other to classes where the teachers told the students that in a week, they're gonna have a test on X, Y, and Z. And the students who didn't know there was a test coming on X, Y, and Z, but who were teaching X, Y, and Z, did better across the board than the students who knew that there was a test coming and were told to prepare for learning X, Y, and Z. That connection, that simple idea of thinking that you're helping someone else learn something actually increases your ability to learn it. And any great teacher knows that the best way to learn something is when you have to start teaching it. Right? Then you see all the different connections. You can explain it in many different ways. And the more you can see that they're connected to other ways of explaining, the more it sets into your memory. And you hear me talking about this all the time. Compassion releases this peptide hormone called oxytocin, which then releases a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Dopamine is called by neurobiologists, the post-it note for memory. So the more dopamine you have flowing around in kids' heads, the better they're gonna remember and learn something. And when you're helping someone, you've got dopamine flowing around in your head because you're feeling like you're making a difference. You're connecting. So this idea of connection, Scarlett, is for anyone who's interested in learning, but it's really woven into the fabric of our social emotional learning program. What happens in the brain, we try to cultivate through our program. And to me, when you look at it and slice it from psychology, from neuroscience, from even astrobiology. A lot of the same lessons are teased out. They're teased out and they're woven into the fabric of our program. That connection that you brought up is so important. It's so important for learning and so important for our kids to understand.
0: And you really helped shape and inform the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement and the Choose Love enrichment program from the very beginning that message that Jesse had left shortly before his murder. He wrote three words, nurturing, healing, love. I knew what it meant to me. (laughs) It was pretty simple that if Adam Lanza, the shooter had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing, love, the tragedy would never have happened. But I thought, wow, this is so incredible that a six-year-old would have written this I wonder if there's a larger meaning. And Dr. Laura Asher said, oh, there's this man named Dr. Chris Cook. So I reached out to you. We spoke. And you did some research on that message and you said that those three words are in the definition of compassion across all cultures. And I said, I know that I've been given a mission and I know I have to get this message into schools. It would have saved Jesse's life. It would have saved the shooter's life. It would have prevented and reduced so much suffering. How do I do that? And you told me it's called social and emotional learning. So I started doing a little bit of research and I thought, oh my gosh, here's this solution that addresses the cause of so many of the issues that we're experiencing in schools that translate out into society, including not just anger and violence in schools, but also substance abuse and mental illness, suicide, depression, bullying, all this stuff. I remember we stood in your office and we were literally holding hands and looking into each other's eyes and saying we are going to create this program and we're both dedicated for life you told me that you were dedicated with me and that we were going to be sitting at the graduation of our kindergartners that started years prior. And that was so significant to me. And true to your word, here you are and have been on my board of directors ever since. And actually you created the proprietary neuroscience for the program, talking about how the brain works and where anger comes from. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. And I think the one thing that I want everyone to kind of walk away with from this episode with us, Scarlett, is our kind of mission, if you will, Mm -hmm. of brain science, right? That's leave the lizard, nut the (laughs) numbat, to hug the human. And when I get to go to schools with you and I hear kids saying, don't be such a numbat, right? And they're using (laughs) that phrase. I'm not gonna lie, I get jacked up. Me too. so excited because that was the idea. We wanted to create a program where the kids could actually learn the neuroscience and then use the neuroscience not something to memorize and then forget but Mm -hmm. something to learn and to apply to their real world and then you know in a couple schools that we've been to you know the moms come up and gave us stories about how their daughters in the back seat were you know getting worried about their mom's (laughs) driving right because mom was getting upset and getting a little bit of road rage (laughs) <laughs> and the daughter said, Mom, leave the lizard and nudge your numbat to hug the human. And when that mom came up to us and told us that, I hugged her. I was like, yes, yeah, it's working, right? The idea is that you have kind of the first formation of the brain, the brain stem and the cerebellum. That's where these kind of automatic reactions come out of, right? And that's where, you know, if you just react to something and not respond to something, we call it McLean's use. He's a neuroscientist from the mid-20th century who kind of started thinking of the brain in three different sections. And we used that and we built upon that idea. The first level is the lizard, right? Is that reptilian brain that automatically just reacts to something. You know when the doctor taps your knee and you can't control it and it just reflexes back? That's your lizard brain. That's the reptilian brain. That's your cerebellum and the brainstem. And then you have the mammalian brain. And I wanted to take a cool mammal that maybe people didn't hear of, but it's really, really cool. I think it's a cross between mm-hmm. like a squirrel, a raccoon, and an anteater. And it's a real mammal called a numbat, and it's located in Australia. And that mammalian brain, that's where a lot of the processing happens when it comes to neurotransmitters and everything from... The cool stuff like dopamine and serotonin. Dopamine is that reward level. Serotonin is that calming sensation that you get. To cortisol, the stress hormone. Right, it all happens in that mammalian brain. Really, the limbic system, the amygdala, right, the hippocampus area. That's that nudging the numbat. So it doesn't go towards the lizard that reaction. We wanted to nudge that numbat, that mammalian part of the brain to the prefrontal cortex, the human brain. That's the last part of the brain that developed. So you have the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and then the human brain. And that's why we came up with the phrase, leave the lizard to nudge the numbat to hug the human because you always want to have the prefrontal cortex engaged. The one way we talk about it also in the program is that the prefrontal cortex, that human part of the brain acts as a brake on that emotional type of brain, right? That reactionary brain so if you're engaging if you're taking that brave breath that we talk about so much that gives you a chance to engage the human part of the brain so you know when it comes to the basic neuroscience you're engaging all levels but we really want to engage that mammalian brain into the prefrontal cortex we want to use that prefrontal cortex because it basically connects everything else. And so you're taking this kind of holistic perspective when it comes to the neuroscience. And we want the kids to be able to use it, not make fun of it, (laughs) right? And that was one of the things that you and I saw when we were looking at a lot of different programs, is that kids were making fun of it, not using it. And so we wanted to make sure that we had something that the kids would actually use, and they're using it more than I ever hoped for.
0: (laughs) It's incredible, I know, and actually it brings tears to my eyes when I go into schools and I hear not only students, but educators and parents, because I remember, Chris, when you called in, it was late at night, that's when all the educators that were working on this program, and you and I were available, everybody was working, and you explained this to us our minds were blown because as adults we didn't know this and what was really obvious to me was that understanding just this triune brain model which you work from so it's very easy but just understanding that you can nudge the numbat to hug the human is where you take your personal power back So, I always ask, like, what do you feel like when you feel like you don't have control over a situation? And, you know, people will say, oh, I feel anxious. I feel frustrated. I feel lost. I feel angry. And the bottom line is this you can take your personal power back. You get control back in any situation, circumstance, or interaction by nudging your numbat to hug the human because it's, The human brain, it's the prefrontal cortex where logic and reasoning reside. So think about it in any situation, circumstance or interaction, don't you wanna be working from that prefrontal cortex? It doesn't matter what's happening. You want to be in control. You want to have your personal power in every situation. And the way to do that And it really helps when you have the understanding that you can nudge that numbat to hug the human, you know, just saying that motto kind of gives you a little break, as you said, to realize, wait a minute, I can take my personal power back in this situation. I can use logic and reasoning and it's profound what it does. I mean, we use it when I say we, I'm talking about the educators and the parents, and this is as much for adults as it is for kids
1: oh yeah without a doubt and this is the key it goes back to the beginning of this episode when you had me talk about the counterintelligence it's the men and women who keep their heads in that logical realm when everything else around you is going haywire and going chaotic They you have to be able to look at it best clear-eyed as you possibly can and that is nudging that numbad to hug the human
0: it's really incredible you did an amazing six-minute video it's on our YouTube page and this is what we also use with kids but I suggest that whoever's listening and you want to get this again you can go and watch that video and see Dr. Chris Cook in person talking about it with some graphics it's just really profound and it's been so appreciated and now being taught of course in every state in the country and over 80 countries It's over
1: 80 now I did not know
0: yes yes yeah it keeps growing it's amazing and it's by word of mouth because people are finding so much success and it's really transforming changing and even saving lives this knowledge And bottom line, it feels good to be able to choose love, and that's what this is. When you take your personal power back, you're working from logic and reasoning, you're choosing love. Choosing love feels good. Anger, hatred, and resentment, which comes from the lizard and the nut it feels bad, and we just wanna feel good. So it makes it simple. Next, I wanna talk about the connection between compassion and success. And I'm actually taking this directly out of your book the compassionate achiever how helping others fuels success if you could see the copy of my book it is dog-eared underlined highlighted i've got little notes on the pages i've got little pieces of paper sticking up all over the place to remind me where to go because i reference it all the time it's one of the best books i've ever read and chapter one is literally titled the connection between Compassion and success. We started talking about this a little bit earlier. You know, we're really wired with a negative bias. So the majority of our thoughts every day are negative and repetitive. And there's a good reason for this it's to keep us safe, but we've kind of not been aware of it and we've let negativity sometimes rule our life like we've all heard kids say i hate myself i'm so stupid Mm -hmm. well that outward expression of negativity doesn't go away it turns inward and it becomes this little voice that harasses us all day long but literally that is just there to keep us safe and you know we have ways of turning that around including positive affirmations in the program, but our negative bias is how we're wired. And, you know, we do have to have awareness, some skills and tools and exert some effort, by the way, to step outside of that and literally rewire our brains through neuroplasticity and how we think bottom line is not difficult towards positivity. And then we also are taught intrinsically, I think this hedonistic treadmill type of mentality where you get on a treadmill like a little mouse in a cage and you just start running and it keeps going and especially with social media and we're comparing ourselves to what others have and the experiences they're having and they only show us the best of the best and we think oh my god we should have that how come i don't have that i need to work harder of course it's not getting things that makes us happy. And then I think we realize that at some time and have a really difficult time with it. And so you start out your book saying there is a connection between compassion and success. So it's literally not running on this hedonistic treadmill. It may just be rooted in compassion. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well, it goes back to our brains. Our brains are hardwired for compassion and I'm not the first one to come up with this thing. Charles Darwin saw this, but even a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's famous for the social contract, he actually says that we're all born with natural compassion, literally natural compassion, he says that. And then he says we unlearn it through society, and it goes back to what you were just saying, this kind of self-reliance, this independence, when we're really interconnected to each other. There is no pure independence. And the quicker we understand that, the more success that you can build. And we've even seen that in research on political economy. That's where I got my PhD in, is why do some countries or some communities develop better and faster than others in terms of not just economics, but health and politics. And it's this idea of looking at the connections between people. And I'm not just talking about, you know, what we were talking about earlier when students are teaching other students. But we have studies, and I cite them in the book as well, from across the country that show that communities that have more fences actually do worse than communities that have more sidewalks. And those sidewalks build up literally those physical connections in suburbia. And I don't know if you've seen the newspapers lately, Wall Street Journal just had a special on this. More millennials are moving to suburbia than ever before suburbia is making a comeback compared to the city. So when you're looking to build up that suburbia, people, you got to build those sidewalks to create those connections, but those connections then help lead you to economic success and not just learning success, you know, specifically, if you go to page 18, you can get some really quick examples of that. Everything from Orion Holdings to IDEO. IDEO is the company that came up with the invention of the electronic mouse right? The ones that we use all the time and they come up with new inventions and they're creative. And that's where the compassion comes in because of the oxytocin, the dopamine and the serotonin that they're going around. But General Mills started this as well several years ago and they saw an uptick in their bottom line. Aetna, Target, Google all do this and they can do it through compassion meditation. That's what I do after every run. It really shows you that you can actually retrain your brain to what you were naturally born with. And You know, studies from Northeastern University show that if you want to build up connection between teams, just the simple idea of everyone tapping their hands together to the same beat builds up a synchronization with people and compassion, the levels of compassion through activity actually go up and lead off the book with that chapter showing those things to give a quick snapshot for people to say, you know, this is not some hocus pocus idea. This actually has real world applicability. And we've stepped off of that success train of everyone moving up together. You know, I talk about this a lot with my honor students. Honor students are type A, they're go-getters. And I think there are two types of type A. There are sharks, there are people who eat other people to get ahead, and then there are dolphins. They'll swim with others to move all the pod forward and successfully up whatever you're trying to achieve. And so I try to populate the, the honors program that I'm in charge of, type A dolphins, because everyone's helping each other to get ahead. If you have sharks swimming around your pool, the sharks are the only ones that are gonna try to get ahead. And if they do, it's always short lived. But this idea of creating an organization, creating community, creating whatever you're in, it could be business, having those dolphins, everyone looking out for each other, that inevitably builds success. And in political economy, we call it the difference between extrinsic values and intrinsic values,
0: mm.
1: right? Extrinsic values are those things that you're doing something because you wanna make money, that you're doing something because you wanna get fame. That's an extrinsic value, money, fame. Intrinsic value is something like, we're doing this the day after July 4th, right? So patriotism <laughs> in political economy is commonly used as an intrinsic value. You're gonna follow it no matter what the cost it is to you because you believe in and of that value or that virtue in and of itself. I believe compassion is just like patriotism; it's an intrinsic value. And if you're following that, that's gonna be your north star, your lodestar. You are gonna achieve success in a political economy. They see that over and over again. As soon as countries create money, it's like a paradox. If you go for the money, you may get it, but it's gonna be really short lived and you come crashing down. But if you have some intrinsic value that is never exhaustible, money is exhaustible, the aim is exhaustible. But if you have something that you follow that's inexhaustible, you're gonna keep going at it. And that's how you succeed. And helping others, there's another byproduct, right? So compassion is an intrinsic value, but then you got the brain chemicals kick in. Hand. It makes you better, makes you healthier. It's a win-win-win-win-win situation <laughs> when you're following compassion, and you're choosing love. So, you know, that's that whole connection. It's wired throughout, not just our individual beings, but through our communal existence. And we seem to sometimes forget that. We get blinded by greed. We get blinded by the fame. And then you're putting down other people. I think people are sacred. And as soon as you start putting down other people, no matter who they are, you start degrading yourself and start degrading the country that you're in, the community that you're in. Because if you can't see that connection between another human being and yourself, you've already lost the game.
0: I want to make two comments. One, dolphins, Jesse called dolphins dolphins. So there are always dolphins <laughs> to make. Dolphins actually protect from the sharks. Yes, Isn't that interesting. Yes, right. And the other thing that I'm thinking about when you're talking is, of course, I'm thinking about my own personal experience and how, you know, after six and a half years of literally running across the United States and world, almost traveling nonstop, speaking in schools, speaking to legislation and really constant travel. And people say to me all the time, oh my gosh, aren't you exhausted? And uh, I'm looking in your book and it says, Only intrinsic values are inexhaustible. And I'm also thinking about how, when I talk about compassion in action, of course, we have this choose love formula that leads you to choosing love in any situation, circumstance, or interaction that you and I came up with. And our last character value is compassion in action. And the slide that I show with all of this research that shows basically whatever you give you get back in spades and that is backed up by all the scientific research and i have found that in my own travels because the jesse lewis choose love movement is only fueled by compassion and wanting to help other people and wanting to make sure no one suffers the way that i did and to transform and save lives and literally to provide these 21st century essential life skills that stay with you for a lifetime at no cost, by the way. So it really is a compassionate endeavor. But when you're a part of that, what I have learned, because I continue to learn, is that everything that you give, oh my gosh, you get more back in so many different ways, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and it absolutely fuels you to do more. And you know, JT learned that as well as a 12-year-old who lost his brother in the Sandy Hook school shooting. And he turned around and created an organization called NewtownHelpsRwanda.org, where he started raising money to help orphan genocide survivors from Rwanda, to build self-sustaining fish ponds for former children soldiers in Uganda, to help severely traumatized kids in the United States. But the lesson that you learn in those efforts is that while he was doing for others, he's actually healing himself. And I've seen it. It's more powerful than any pharmaceutical you could take. It's really phenomenal. And so, you know, everything that you're saying in your book, we're seeing happening in our lives.
1: It's awesome, actually. And when you see it with your own eyes and when you feel it like JT did, right, you know it. It happens, it sits in, everything starts connecting and everything starts moving forward in a positive, constructive way.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So I'm sure that people who are listening to the podcast right now are saying, oh my gosh, well, I wanna implement this in my life. Gosh, I wanna start being compassionate. You know, I wanna do for others. I understand the benefits that I'm gonna get, but fear is holding me back. There's some fear and you define sources of fear is doubt i hear what they're saying and i know they say it works for them and there's science behind it but what if it doesn't work for me ignorance well you don't have ignorance anymore because you know and then pessimism right mm, i don't know what they're saying is is hundred percent and so how do you find the courage as you say to try to overcome that fear
1: well there's a bunch of different ways that one i think you just brought up and that's you know when you're doing something for someone else someone you love for example i was very blessed to have grandmothers that were just superheroes and when i have that doubt when i have that fear i think of what i would do for them there's nothing i wouldn't do i would do anything for them and so you take examples of how and what matters to you in your life use that as fuel to go forward I believe that there's a bunch of different things that you can do. I have a bunch of songs that I play. My go-to is superheroes by the script. You know, I do that over and over again. I have a mantra that I say over and over again that gets me to do things that maybe I wouldn't have even tried before. I always used to say I can do anything. And science has shown that I should really use my first name. Chris, you can do anything. Garly, you can do anything, right? Science has recently shown that, you know, I've been using the mantra raw. Oh. <laughs> no, I could use it better, more effectively, if I act my name. And so it's those types of things that you can get going. Laughing actually helps. So when I got something that I need to do, I'll come up with jokes. So if there's so many different things you can do, a compassion meditation, and for each one of us, that compassion meditation could be something different. I had to try a lot of different types of meditation. And then at different times, I need to do it right after I run, right after my body is exhausted and I can focus in, in deeper parts of my mind. I'm much better at it than when I try to just do meditation right away. So you've got to try the different things. You know, Einstein said that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and you keep failing, that's the definition of being an idiot, basically. <laughs> and- <laughs> And so, <laughs> you gotta try, you gotta try those different ways of improving your life. Sometimes they're gonna work and sometimes they're not, but boy, a lot more doors open up that you didn't even think were possible. And so, those are just some of the different ways that you can get going. I literally, and you've been over in my house, so in the kitchen, I put wood floors on that you could slide with your socks like risky business. Ah, oh, that's fun because I know me and I know my boys that we play our music to get us up in the morning. And so you can slide into the kitchen as long as no one's cooking. Um, (laughs) You can slide in and play your music and get it going. It makes a big difference. It's those things that you can set up on a daily basis to make you become resilient, to make you see more hope than pessimism.
0: And you're just thinking about it and you're putting your awareness on it. Research shows just when you start thinking about something, you move towards that. And of course, for me, I use Jesse's courage as kind of my guide star.
1: Well, and Jesse said something else. I'm gonna interrupt you right there. Yes, He said, have fun. Yeah, right. he did. Have fun doing this stuff. I think people get bogged down. They feel like they have to eat their broccoli in order to have it. That's the opposite way. And nothing against broccoli people sorry um, right <laughs> but you gotta have fun doing it and if you're not having fun doing it i don't think you're going to stay with whatever it is right and so it's jesse was right looking to have fun
0: that's so true and i used this example of courage and own, like he saved nine of his classmates lives so i think gosh if he could do that i certainly can get up and i can speak and- in front of an audience like he gave me the easy part of the mission really and so that always helps me when I think about that perspective with that being said I want to kind of wrap up here with part three of your book where you talk about the ripple effect because compassion in action is such a powerful component of choosing love it's the identification of pain or an issue empathize that and then the action component and then that ripple effect can you talk about that
1: yeah literally the most simple way to understand it is that one person can make a difference that your compassion is contagious just like negative behavior is contagious so is positive compassionate behavior and i think you know matter what goes on around you that the more compassionate you are it the easier it becomes it's like love when i hear someone say to me that love you know, oh my God, it can burn you down. Some of the songs, I listen to a lot of blues. I'm like, man, those dudes are doing love wrong. (laughs) Right, yeah, (laughs) right. Love builds you up. I love listening to those songs because it shows me what other people are going through. Maybe I got lucky. As you know, I married way above me. And you know, what's really helpful is that when you're in love, it doesn't tear you down. It makes you do things that you didn't think you could do before. That's what compassion does. So university is like my second home there's trash on the ground, I pick it up. And what I found is that there were people watching me and now there are other people picking up the trash. And all it takes is one action over and over again. And that ripple will just continue on into places you can't even see. And I think with compassion, we could use a lot more of that in the world right now. And I think when you see kids doing something compassionate for other kids and you see adults doing something compassionate for other adults, Right now people are surprised, but I'm hoping in not-too-distant future it just becomes a habit. It becomes a ripple that really just echoes throughout our entire world.
0: And we know that it can become a habit and we can hardwire ourselves for that. We're born gravitating towards compassion, that's what science tells us, and then we kind of move away from it, but we can go back to that place, we can rewire our brains through neuroplasticity to make that, again, our go-to thing, which that compassion in action. And in your book, you write, Leo Tolstoy points the paradoxical way towards constructively affecting the global community. Quote, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Becoming a compassionate achiever is the first step in creating a compassionate world and then I wanna go into something else that you say in that same section. Mother Teresa echoed what many compassionate achievers have voiced, quote, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples, end quote. We all can make real world ripples that bring out the best of humanity if we are willing to walk life's roads as compassionate achievers.
1: That's right. Wow, you really did underline in book (laughs) here.
0: These are things that I had already underlined. So I just kind of went through this morning and then right next to the Mother Teresa quote, I wrote social media post. So if you probably go back in my social media, that is a post that I did because that is so incredible. And it's what I found in my experience that just one person can make a significant change you can choose to make the change you have to within yourself first right. and then that ripples outward and literally literally you can change the world and that's what we're out to do in the oh, jesse yeah. lewis choose love movement oh yeah <laughs> yeah so thank you so much dr chris cook author of the compassionate achiever I highly suggest that, I mean, if the world would read your book, the world would definitely be a better place. And I know that you have enhanced my life, my family's life, JT loves you. And I am so excited where our Choose Love movement is going and where we will find ourselves in that 12 years or 13 years when our kindergartners that started the program are graduating I can't wait for that picture of you and I to be sitting there and (laughs) celebrating.
1: Yeah, and you know who else is going to be celebrating right there with us? Not just Jesse and not just JT, but your awesome, awesome mom, Maureen. Oh, yeah. It's going to be right there with (laughs) us as well. Oh, and there's this other guy, Bob. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) but we won't talk about him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You really have a great family. and When I think of somebody that I know in your family that makes sunshine appear, Your mom is one of those people as well. And I feel lucky I get to work with you and your mom and JT. So thanks for having me on. And thanks for having me a part of this whole ride.
0: What an adventure. It is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Choose Love podcast audience. Have a great day. And have a lot of fun. (laughs)
1: That's right. Bye. it's all part of us we can all choose love it'll lift you up if you let it in let the heat